This is the American Psychological Association's Division 15 podcast series on emerging research in educational psychology. My name is Jeff Green. Thanks for joining us. So I've served on committees and advisory boards for my kids' schools, and it's there that I saw how profound education policy is. As new education policies are passed, teachers and school administrators often have to make significant changes to their instruction, frequently with little advance notice. It can be tough to change instruction every time a new education policy is passed. And the effects of those education policies on teaching and learning can sometimes be seen immediately, but often they are more distal and slow building. I can recall the students' joy when a local school district greatly reduced how much homework teachers could assign each night. I also remember the slow but steadily growing parental concern that due to a lack of homework practice time, their kids might not be getting out of school what those parents had gotten so many years ago. Education policy affects how people learn and teach in schools, and therefore policy really should be on the minds of scholars who study teaching and learning, like educational psychologists. But for a number of reasons, educational psychology has not had the kind of impact on education policy that its importance warrants. There really has been a gap between educational psychology research and education policy creation, implementation, and evaluation. Sharon Nichols is one of the leaders in educational psychology who is trying to change that, and I'm thrilled to talk to her today about how educational psychology can better inform and be better informed by education policy. Sharon Nichols is professor and chair of the Department of Educational Psychology at the University of Texas at San Antonio. She is also the director of the University of Texas at San Antonio's Urban Education Institute. She is a fellow of Division 15 of the American Psychological Association, as well as a past vice president of Division 15, and also is the inaugural co-editor of the upcoming new Division 15 journal, Educational Psychology for Policy and Practice. Dr. Nichols' research, spanning the last two and a half decades, has focused on a range of topics including student motivation, teacher practices, educational accountability, and the role of high-stakes testing and teaching and learning. Today, we're talking about Sharon's 2023 article in Educational Psychologist entitled Enhancing the Relevancy of Educational Psychology to Policy, which she co-authored with Imogen Herrick. This article also serves as the introduction to a special issue of Educational Psychologist on policy-oriented research, which she guest edited. Sharon, thanks so much for talking to me today, and congratulations on the special issue. Oh, thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. So what led you to decide to guest edit a special issue on policy and educational psychology? Wow, that's a good question. The idea really took hold a long time ago. I started this quest of trying to understand how educational psychology scholarship might intersect with questions of education policy. And that journey spanned at least a decade, during which I figured out a lot of things and also didn't know a lot of things. Mm -hmm. The things that I was trying to figure out were, how do we do this work? Where does the field stand as it relates to education policy? That was kind of the first question. Mm -hmm. And over time, through a variety of experiences, publishing opportunities, conversations at conferences, I came to realize really two fundamental things. One is people in our community, meaning the educational psychology community, want to have more impact with their work. They want their scholarship to have some kind of impact. And policy is clearly one way of having impact. Mm -hmm. The second fundamental thing was no one really knew how to do that. What does that look like? How do we do that? What does that even mean? Mm -hmm. And so for many years, Again, through a variety of activities, I've been churning over this question of how do we encourage this field to think more about the role of policy in their work? 
couple of years ago, can't remember exactly the year, there was a presidential session at APA conference where a few scholars and I came together during a presidential session to talk about policy and educational psychology. And it was really there that this idea took hold. Mm -hmm. Let's bring these pieces together in a special issue that can make an incremental step in this goal of trying to further inspire thoughts around policy among educational psychologists. And I'm glad that you did. And I'm glad that we get a chance to talk about it today. So it might help our listeners if we kind of start with the basics. Can you talk to us about what education policy is and why it matters for educational psychologists? That's a really good question. I think a good way to start answering that is with why I personally got into this, going back a little further. Great. My training in educational psychology, I would characterize as very traditional. I was steeped in learning about the theories, educational psychology theories of teaching, learning, motivation, development, and the methods that we use to study those processes. After graduation, I did a postdoc with David Berliner and Jean Glass, where we worked on No Child Left Behind, which was a relatively new law at the time, in trying to understand how that federal piece of legislation was impacting student learning. It was in that year where I became really steeped in as a postdoc and having the luxury of just doing research and no other obligations. I really spent a lot of time thinking about this policy, this federal policy. Mm -hmm. And I came to learn a lot about what policy is, how complex it is in implementation and how interesting it is in the lives of teachers and students. Mm-hmm. But I had no formal training in thinking about policy. So my exposure to policy was really this organic ad hoc experience that really lit a fire in terms of organizing my interest subsequent to that postdoc experience, which was to really continue to look at the power and the impact of policies on teachers and students' lives. So with that being initiated and in the lead up to this special issue, it also became clear that a lot of educational psychologists have that very question you just asked me, which is what is policy? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I feel like that's a strange question because it's the first thing I tend to think of now is what's, mm-hmm. what are the policy connections to this particular issue? It's actually the thing that drives the questions I ask. Mm-hmm. I start with policy, but I had to recognize and in putting together this special issue, thinking about the audience of educational psychology researchers who very widely, in terms of their interests, we're organized under a few big umbrellas, but there is diversity in the things we look at and the ways we look at it. And yeah. a common question is, well, what is policy and how does it connect to me? Right. There is no simple answer I can give a community of diverse scholars, but I can say that policy is a couple things. It's at a very practical level. It's the rules that govern what we do in education context, because that's where we tend to focus our work. So it's the rules that govern what happens there. Mm -hmm. And those rules exist at various ecosystems. There's national rules, there's state level rules, and there's local rules. Mm -hmm. There's also rules that are very formal and prescriptive, and there are informal or implicit rules. All of these are subject to analysis. The other key thing about policy is it drives what happens in schools or in classrooms. It is the thing that drives the very practices we're trying to understand and we try to study. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So it's that intersection that I think is incredibly ripe for analysis by educational psychologists. And let me give another example. When I was studying high stakes accountability or high stakes testing and its impact on teaching and learning, particularly in the early days of No Child Left Behind, that was such a dominant thing going on in our educational landscape. And yet educational psychologists were largely, not solely, but largely still preoccupied with theory building kind of work. Mm -hmm. That was largely disjointed from what teachers were actually doing or needing help with in the classroom related to testing in this case. Well, so it's really helpful for me to hear how you think about education policy, because I suspect many of our listeners know something about education policy, but maybe not a lot and certainly not as much as you. And you have this broader kind of multidimensional perspective on it that I think is really helpful. And in the article, you talked about two kinds of policy-oriented educational psychology research. You talked about concept-oriented and instrumental-oriented. And I think if we could talk about that a little bit, it might help our listeners get a little closer to your kind of multidimensional understanding. So can you talk to us about those two different kinds of research? Yeah, absolutely. So if you look at some research that's been done looking at policymakers' attitudes towards research and how they use research, they use it, of course, for a variety of reasons and in a variety of ways. And one is to understand how something is working, not if it is working, but how it's working. That's sort of concept-oriented use of research, which is, Mm -hmm. to be helpful to educational psychologists, it's the approach to policy whereby you're asking questions about how a policy is operating. So for example, I'll just keep going back to kind of my wheelhouse, which is high-stakes testing. What we know is The pressures associated with high-stakes testing on teachers varies widely. Mm -hmm. So high-stakes testing is the practice of attaching consequences to how well students do on a standardized test. Mm -hmm. So the manifestation of that pressure, as you can imagine, varies widely depending on a couple things. How well students are going to do. So you have high-achieving students. They pass the test somewhat, quote-unquote, easily as a teacher You may or may not have to work really hard to get them to pass the test. We know students, um, there are some students, particularly high socioeconomic status student populations, tend to do better on these types of tests in general, such that the work teachers have to do is less pressurized because students are going to do well on tests no matter what. And so the actual pressure teachers feel in the classroom is going to vary widely depending on the context. And so what we need is research that's looking at the diversity of these contexts and the ways in which high-stakes testing pressure then plays out for those teachers and or for those students. Concept-oriented research aims to describe the terrain, if you will, of what is happening with respect to any given policy. Mm -hmm. policies, what I learned very early on, I kind of had this naive idea that a policy is a policy. It's as simple as that. You either use the test in this way to determine whether a student passes to the next grade or not. It's kind of black and white type of situation. But actually, very few policies operate that way on the ground because they involve interpretations of the practitioners that have to implement them. Mm -hmm. And so from a policymaker point of view, The concept-oriented research is a category of research that helps them think about where this policy plays out, how it plays out in these different contexts. 
The instrumental-oriented research is more about the effects of policy. Does it work? Does it not work? Now we kind of get in the terrain of sort of the, the gold standard, experimental, causal kinds of types of questions. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we already sort of think a little bit about doing that type of work, but we need to do more of the describing the various ways in which policy manifests in these different contexts. And this is a wonderful area that's already getting a lot of attention in our community because we care a lot more about, or talking a lot more, I should say, about how do we impact practitioners? How do we talk mm-hmm. to and with and about and, and help them in their work and the role of context? So we've generated so much sort of generalizable theory-driven work that has helped us think about the frameworks we want to use. But now we also now need to apply those frameworks to help us understand how things play out in a variety of different contexts. So Mm -hmm. one type of disciplinary policy in a small rural school, what does that look like versus that same disciplinary policy or similar disciplinary policy in an urban setting where there's different types of students, different types of pressures. Mm -hmm. Teaching and school systems are so inherently complex. We need to know now better the ways in which these types of policies are manifest in these variety of systems. So concept-oriented research is sort of organized with that goal in mind. And instrumental research is organized with the goal of, okay, does it work or does it not work? And these two things are somewhat related, of course, because we want to know, does it work in this context versus that context as well? But it's a slightly different question. So Imogen and I use that framing because it kind of helps readers think about, okay, how do I start? Or what are the types of questions I might want to pursue given my you know, interest in whatever area of educational psychology they focus on? And that's that's really helpful. It reminds me, you know, we often talk about doing research about what works for whom under what conditions. And it right. sounds like under what conditions is dr- dramatically affected by education policy. Absolutely. And again, the, the high stakes testing situation where I was just kind of blown away because it was a new idea for me at the time anyway, to think about you had this national policy that said in very clear terms, you have to create a standardized test. You have to create or determine cutoff scores that will determine whether students pass or fail. You have to implement a set of consequences. States varied so widely with respect to how they pursued those rules. And then drilling down even further within the state, because of whatever the state rules were, there were so many different manifestations of it at the district and then school level. And then as a motivational researcher, it started really blowing my mind thinking about, well, teacher A might then respond to the pressure by giving students nothing but messages around do this to pass the test. The only reason to learn is to pass the test, pass the test, pass the test. What effect is that having on students in that context versus another context that might be similar in all other measures, but now that teacher is interpreting the pressure a different way? Hey, I need to give you feedback that's more process-oriented, and I need to dilute the meaning of the test in my mind so I don't pass that along to students in my teaching. So what are the feedback mechanisms that manifested from these pressure systems We needed more scholars out kind of doing that work to promote and unveil the ways in which 
pressure, was impacting practices, was impacting students and their motivation. We have general ideas based on our theoretical frameworks. We know about extrinsic and intrinsic messaging and things like that. But really more on the ground, I started to wonder, what else can we help teachers with so they can arm themselves against the damaging effects of this pressure if they work in a situation where the pressure feels really great or where the pressure maybe doesn't feel as great? What does that even look like? And what types of implications or guidance could our scholarship offer them by way of how to actually navigate it on the ground? Yeah, that's so important. And it strikes me that education policy affects the phenomena that we're interested in, like you're talking about testing. And I, I think about test anxiety. I think about teacher motivation, as you said. I think about you know instructional theories and how a different policy might affect those versus you know, another policy. But then policy itself is also a phenomenon that can be studied, right? It has impacts and it has goals when it comes to psychological phenomena, et cetera. So I, I like this distinction between concept-oriented and instrumental-oriented because for me, it broadens my sense of, well, if I was interested in studying policy, how would I do that? It gives me different directions to approach it. So that's really helpful. And you've mentioned already high stakes testing and No Child Left Behind. That's clearly a policy that had a lot of effect upon education context. I mean, what are some other policy related phenomena that educational psychologists might be interested in studying, either in a concept oriented way or an instrumental oriented way? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's really a lot. I like how you started off uh, this conversation by pointing to sort of what happens locally in our neighborhoods or schools our children attend as a place to get ideas around the types of policies that matter. Mm -hmm. Local issues, local policy wrangling, I think is really a great place to start. In the special issue, Avi Kaplan talks about a grading policy shift that happens and the ways in which educational psychology research could enter into that conversation and be a broker of good or bad decision making around that policy. Mm -hmm. So I think those kind of local issues, so things like homework, like what you just said, grading, feedback systems. I think accountability systems, they're a little more localized now. So they're more local districts slash state level concerns. I think that can be an area that folks can look at. At the school level, I always kind of come back to disciplinary sort of policies, looking at what's going on locally and kind of trying to understand or study it from a concept or an instrumental point of view. You know, we can go back to homework, amount of homework, quality of homework, how is it infringing on parent time? kind of information because we can do we do this work for multiple reasons. There's reasons to understand what the policy is doing to our kids. There's also reasons to understand the effects it's having on kids and on teachers. And there's to change the policy, get the data so we can send it back to the policymakers or local school boards, if you will. Policy around CRT and curriculum scope. There could be lots that educational psychologists can do there. Of course, branching out lens-wise, state-level policies. Again, my area is really around accountability questions. Teacher retention is another hot topic right now. Anything related to teacher retention and burnout. Student mental health issues. So policies around the support or lack thereof around student mental health Mm -hmm. issues in schools. So there's really a lot of ideas 
And my goal with this special issue and in trying to promote this idea of just even thinking about policy is to also acknowledge I don't know all the possible policies out there that might make sense to different scholars with different interests, but just to say that it is out there and to find the thing that touches your area to study and put your expertise on Mm -hmm. to both help practitioners as well as to inform policymakers And then dissemination is always a piece of this, getting the word out of what you've learned. And there's different avenues talked about a little bit in the special issue. And we have the policy brief program with the division. But getting information out is also part of the arc of the work that I think is being encouraged with this special issue Mm -hmm. and what others are doing too, certainly not just this. Yeah, the special issue does a great job of inspiring people to do this kind of work as you just did. And then I know that the dissemination piece is really important. Like Division 15 is doing those policy briefs that go out. I think that's a way to disseminate what educational psychology can contribute to education policy. You know, I I guess I'm wondering, it just sounds like such a vital, important and rich area of scholarship. I mean, why aren't more educational psychologists engaging with education policy? I think that's a really good question. I think there's probably a lot of reasons, but I also think it's starting to change, which is good. But I think one reason, and it's touched upon in a variety of the pieces in that special issue, is our training programs don't incorporate this idea. Mm. There's no formal attention to it, certainly in how we're trained. We're trained from a very ed psych way, which is probably redundant to say, but you know, we focus on the discipline area, the motivation, the cognitive sort of motivational learning areas. So we're not trained. So I think that's one reason. I think also there's a couple other reasons. Um, I have a handbook of Ed Psych chapter coming out and I talk a little bit more about these reasons in there that I think are in operation. Mm-hmm. I think there's an idea that it might come too close to advocacy and therefore will somehow make our science less credible. So there might be a concern. I don't want to, you know, get into taking a side, if you will, through the act of wanting to laser focus on a particular policy. I think that could be operating a little bit. Hmm. I think there's another idea that certainly in the early days of No Child Left Behind and the What Works Clearinghouse sort of era where the priority is on, you know, randomized control trial work, experimental work as the only sort of legitimate way to look at policy because of its goal of showing what works, what doesn't work. I think Mm -hmm. there hasn't been this real sort of opening up, if you will, on the idea of more like concept related work. Like we actually just need more research doing what you already do, but paying attention to contextual issues and the relevant policies associated with those contexts and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of is part of it. And I think, too, there's, I talk a lot about, in a variety of places, my influence, David Berliner, who's also talked a lot about this, which is the identity of the field writ large, has been sort of vacillating and struggling, if you will, to center in on one thing. We've gone back and forth from overly quantitative, generalizable kind of science and away from classroom-based, you know, small N-work. And then Mm -hmm. we're sort of vacillating back to small N-work and more context-oriented work now. And sort of this preoccupation with the quant-qual war, if you will, over time. And David Berliner has traced this really nicely in a few of his pieces. I think also has kept our eye off the ball of other reasons to do the work and other ways to do the work. 
I think we're now in a good position having built off this long history of going back and forth. We're embracing more mixed methodologies, you know, we're embracing the role of context and diversity and these other sorts of ideas that are now giving us more permission, if you will, or insight into other ways and other reasons for the work we do, I think. Mm -hmm. So I think all of these things are somewhat at play here and there. And I think too, just people don't think policy is relevant or what role does it play because we don't really know or understand it. So there's there's Mm -hmm. all these things I think that are part of the why. I agree with you. And those things, the debates about quant and qual and all those silly mm-hmm. things we spent our time on back in the day, right? It's mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really glad that we are moving towards a place where we care about what we should care about, in my opinion, which are the questions. Like, What are the phenomena? What are the questions that really matter? How can we make a difference in the world? And I know that in our doctoral program, the students that we have nowadays, they really care about these things. They want to make a difference. They care about practice. They care about policy. And you mentioned in the article that you're seeing some of the same things. And so what I'm wondering is how can we kind of create an environment where early career scholars and their interest in education policy making a difference, how can we create an environment that supports them and actually makes that something they'll be properly recognized for? Yeah, I mean... That's a good question. I have answers, but I don't control promotion and tenure and, and you know. We're going to make, we're gonna make you in charge of it. You're okay, the czar. I want to be in charge of all that. Perfect. Good. Do it. You just tell me what you do. Yeah, yeah. Well, even still, I don't know that I have all the answers, but there's a couple things. I think setting out to formulate more intentional opportunities around questions of policy, challenging students to think about what really matters to them, what do they care about, what issues, maybe even an activity either within a course or outside of a course where they look at a local policy and play around with how they might study it, maybe even actually do that. But I think just encouraging folks to ask those questions or drill down on those types of policy relevant problems and locally, I think, is always a good place to start. And then even maybe writing a policy brief, getting practice at what does that look like? And I'm hopeful with the new journal when that comes about, that will be another avenue for folks to see that their work will be recognized and supported because there's a publication outlet dedicated specifically to work that looks at policy and practice and the intersections therein. And the goal is going to be, if you do have a publication there, you'll do a brief too. So it's to kind of scaffold those opportunities. So just be encouraging of those things and then provide opportunities and spaces for thinking about those questions. That's great. And you mentioned the the new journal, which I'm excited about. Do you want to share a little bit more about what that new journal is, like its title and what your goals are for it? Yeah, sure. We've been waiting a while for the contract to come through. We're still waiting, but I think we're very close. The journal is Educational Psychology for Policy and Practice. Mm -hmm. Francesca Lopez is the co-editor with me, and our vision of it is to be a space where educational psychologists submit work looking at questions of policy and or practice more centrally. So there's no one way to do that. You know, this is going to be a developmental process for us as well. But because I think we're working with scholars who still have these questions that we're talking about today that we're going to hopefully be a part of helping to scaffold the work. But generally speaking, we're looking for work where people are looking at questions of policy in our practice as a sort of foreground 
area in the study, you know, we all do the implications for policy, implications for practice. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, in the special issue, we did an informal analysis of it, psychologists, and it was just one journal, but we don't even do implications for policy that much. So I don't think yeah. people are even necessarily thinking about what a study might even mean to policy, let alone setting out to do a whole project on a policy issue or question. So we're hoping that the institution of this journal will inspire folks to think about work in that way, engage in work in that way. And we're going to have as part of the journal, probably little sections like how-to sections. We'll have experts who have done this kind of work provide insights on like the question of what is policy cannot be easily answered in one podcast or one journal article. So I think we'll have to continue to develop and build the knowledge base around what it is and what it means to an educational psychologist and what are examples. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to you know, look to build up the database, if you will, in that area over time and scaffold the opportunities to do that work. That's awesome. And kudos and thanks to you and Francesca for leading this. It's a huge job to start a new journal, and it's going to fill a really important gap in our field. So thank you. That's amazing. And the journal can be a place where the field can distribute ideas about how educational psychology can affect policy and practice. And I love that you'll be asking authors to include a policy brief also. What are some other ways that we can get educational psychology research findings and insights into the hands of policymakers? Mm, That's a really good question. Well, there's the individual effort and there's the professional effort. Like, what do we do as a member of a professional organization? Those are different mechanisms for getting things into policymakers' hands. And then as an individual, what do I do? At the professional sort of organizational level, the policy committee has been trying to initiate programming, hosting webinars, how to, you know, getting out information on ways that individuals can get involved to share insights. We have connections with, well, through APA. APA has become more active on the Hill related to advocacy around issues for psychology. That's not ed psych, but that's psychology. So the division and the policy committee is trying to engage in conversations with APA on ways that we can also be available to provide information when it's asked for. Because the thing about policymakers is they want it when they want it. We might not always have the information at the ready. That's part of the issue right now is we need more people to keep doing this work so we have more information and more individuals ready when it's needed on the spot. So at the organizational level, there's those types of things that you can do. But as an individual, of course, you can get to know your local congressman, Mm. get in their offices, get in front of them and have conversations. That is the best way to start getting some credibility such that when a question is being raised or an issue is being debated, that we have science to inform, Mm. then we can kind of get it in their hands. I think how to do it, it is complex because politics are politics. You do have those who have their agendas that will do whatever they want, regardless of the science. But I'm starting at the beginning with the things that I'm just been thinking about trying to do, which is let's just start generating the science. And let's start getting comfortable with the fact that we are experts in certain areas and we have something to offer. Mm-hmm. The next step is getting it out there and making these connections. So it's hard for me to answer because I think about it from a sort of a systematic organizational point of view. How do I, how do we get yeah. division 15 to be more facilitative mm-hmm. of this kind of connections with policymakers? And then, you know, what do individuals do? And, you know, you can't dictate what an individual is going to do. But I think the starting point is just to give the idea out there and start doing the work, start creating the science 
And then we can take it step by step for becoming the go-to experts on things related to student motivation, teacher mm-hmm. intervention, that type of thing. So I really like that kind of dual focus. And I know that the American Psychological Association kind of writ large has been encouraging us to be more active when it comes to policy. And so I could see how Division 15 could continue to do that. And then individuals, you're right. Like It makes a lot of sense that we would reach out to our representatives and try to help them see us as experts they could call upon. That makes a ton of sense. And I think that'd be a really wonderful thing to do. And your special issue has all kinds of examples of how we can do policy relevant research. So as a way to kind of put a bow on the special issue for our listeners, can you give them a sense of what some of the articles talk about and what they will experience when they dive in? Yeah, sure. So the overarching goal of the special issue is to address the questions of why do this work and how. Okay. So the first couple pieces by myself and one by myself and David Berliner is about kind of the why, the fact that you know, there is this gap that we have a community of people who want to have more impact, that we have this kind of expertise in these areas that can really help our practitioners and subsequently policy and vice versa. So there's sort of the why. And then the bulk of the special issue are examples on the how. And so we have a piece by Avi Kaplan who provides sort of a a framework for how to set up a research question and carry it out with policy as a variable in mind. And he gives some examples of what that could look like. So depending on your interests, your kind of your methodological leanings, you can kind of use his framework as a way to kind of plug in the types of things that one might want to look at. And using, again, policy as a variable and ways to think about that. Mm-hmm. We have another one that's a slightly different example of how to think about policy. And that's from Akane Zusho and her colleagues who wanted to use educational psychology knowledge to make the case for how and why we might change our national curriculum standards. Mm-hmm. So national curriculum standards are, you know, the manifestation of policies that say, hey, this is what schools should teach and how they should teach them. And therefore, we're saying implicitly in this what we think the purpose of schools are. And so they took this creative approach to sort of deconstruct the existing view of the national standards that we have, and then to say, here's the problems with that, and here's what the science and the theoretical frameworks of educational psychology would say is actually a better way to frame national standards with hope and joy and value for learning in mind, because our Mm. current standards don't do that. So it's Mm. a very different slant on how you might look at policy with the expertise you might bring to the question. Rather than how do you do it, this is using EdPsych to deconstruct an existing policy view, if you will. Mm. Very cool. And then we have Leon Gray and his colleagues taking his community-engaged perspective on research and taking it a step further to say, here's the way community-engaged scholarship intersects with policy. And you're inherently looking at some feature of policy when you engage in community-engaged research. So he looks at it from a philosophical point of view, but also to say that it's a particular way that you can really drill down in local policy enactment, attitudes, values, and so forth. 
Mm-hmm. The last two are our commentators. So we have Francesca Lopez, who does a rundown of the articles and her point of view on the why and the how and brings her expertise to bear on that analysis. And then Jessica DeKergumby comes out and says, this is all great. I actually think y'all should go further and think about being advocates mm. in the work you do and don't be afraid to do that. Because there are some things we're doing from an ed policy point of view that are right and some that are wrong and we shouldn't be afraid to take a step out and see our science as doing that good, if you will. So she has a better way of positioning that, but kind of makes the case to say, you know, look, it's okay that there is a right and wrong here sometimes. Those are my words, not hers, but that's essentially what she pushes for and says we should push farther. So I think collectively there's a good sampling, but as I acknowledge in the beginning, it doesn't answer every question people are going to have or provide every example or iteration. It's just to provide initial steps, particularly for those who are very new to it. And then for those who aren't as new to it, maybe there's something deeper that it can provide. Well, exactly, right? So no special issue can do everything, but your special issue does an amazing job of helping people, as you said, kind of understand what education policy is, why it's important, how educational psychologists can contribute to it. And then I I just love Francesca and Jessica's perspectives on the field and where the field could go. Really challenging stuff, important stuff. Mm -hmm. Thank you again so much for guest editing this special issue, Sharon. It's really an important contribution to the field. Well, thank you very much. I look forward to learning more what people think as well and and continuing the conversation. Great. So I know that there are listeners out there that are kind of thinking like, you know, maybe I want to propose a a special issue of educational psychologists, but I kind of, I don't know, I'm not sure. Do you have any advice for those people given that you've done it successfully? Yeah. Well, my main advice is be sure you're passionate about your topic Mm -hmm. because it's not a simple endeavor. It requires a lot of persistence, Mm -hmm. but it's also incredibly satisfying and you learn a lot. So I think going in, being motivated, being passionate, because that's what will keep you in the game. And I guess also in doing it, the other part of the experience that I think was somewhat surprising because I've edited special issues before, but I learned a lot from this process, from the reviewers and from you and Lisa's feedback. It really was an ongoing conversation between the authors, the reviewers, myself, you and Lisa, really churning on this topic. And so I think go into it, be open to this conversation you'll engage in as things develop over time Mm-hmm. and be willing to be responsive, but also clear-minded on your position or your point of view on whatever the topic area is. And then on a practical side, <laughs> mm-hmm. when you propose a special issue, you have authors in mind, you have topics in mind, you should have reached out to these folks to see how willing they are and make sure you go through it, not during a pandemic. So if you can do <laughs> that, that's also a very good suggestion. <laughs> yeah. That sounds good. Let's let's hope nobody has to do that again. Yeah, that's great. So I think listeners are probably also interested in your research. So what are you kind of working on right now in your own scholarship that's exciting you? Well, I've I am very excited. I have this new role as director of here. It's called the Urban Education Institute. It's a pretty new opportunity for me, but it's an institute that's like four years old now. So I took over from the previous director who had started it up to be sort of a local community-based evaluation sort of think tank, if you will. And I'm in the process of 
working on these projects that I inherited while also trying to conceptualize new directions for the Institute as a research hub that partners with communities. It's really going to be a research practice partner policy, sort of an RPPP, if you will, sort of enterprise. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at all kinds of projects right now. We have a first gen college students projects where we've partnered with a local nonprofit to look at their experiences and the types of supports they need. I'm bringing educational psychology to the table to help unpack what's going on and what kind of supports they want to provide those students. Mm-hmm. We have a, a more of an evaluation project. This is not where I want to live, but it's still interesting work looking at a workforce development training program that the city has undertaken that is incredibly expansive in scope. So another sort of community-based partnership, again, bringing educational psychology to look at local issues, challenges, complexities. But we're also doing other things, looking at applying for various NSF grants to help understand, particularly first-gen students, STEM coursework undertaking through college. So there's a variety of things, but my main thing is to kind of practice what I've been preaching, which is partially to enhance my community-based partnerships such that we can continue to look at local problems, local education policy problems. But also my other commitment is to provide opportunities for other scholars and other early career scholars. And so I'm also finding ways to set those sort of pathways up, if you will. So lots of exciting different stuff going on, still coming into focus, but that's generally what I've been doing. That sounds like a lot. It sounds amazing. Uh, So congratulations for all of that. But gosh, sounds like you're busy. So Sharon, any final words about the special issue? I just want to say thank you to all the authors who stuck in there to do this work. There is going to be a webinar that the policy committee has put together where we're going to convene the authors. And the goal of it is going to be for them to talk about what they learned about policy and their work as they worked on this special issue. Because I heard throughout the process from authors here and there how, wow, they've learned a lot. They didn't know what they were really getting into and the ways they were pushed to think about policy. I think that will unveil way more than what I could share about how do educational psychologists learn to do this and think about this. So that's going to be really exciting and helpful for people who are interested in this topic area. So thank you to them for what they did for the special issue for this upcoming thing. I just really appreciate them and all the reviewers and everyone who participated in putting this special ed and the editors, you two and Lisa, it's been really a teamwork. So I really appreciate all that. That's a great place for us to wrap up for today. So I encourage all our listeners to check out Sharon's special issue of Educational Psychologist on policy-oriented research, enhancing the relevancy of educational psychology to policy. And they can start with the great introduction article that Sharon co-authored with Imogen Herrick. So Sharon, thanks again for your leadership on this and for talking to me about it today. Thank you. And finally, to you, our listener, if you enjoy this podcast, check out our other episodes on your favorite podcast app, and please consider rating and reviewing us. You can also go to the APA Division 15 website where they have all of our podcasts linked in the publication section. Thanks again for listening.